Welcome to this week's episode of the Live from Lake Balfour podcast. I'm your host, Maddie Wasserman. So happy to have you in for this week's episode, and it's an exciting one. We are going to be talking to Bruno about a wide variety of camp subjects. It's a really fun podcast. We're, of course, going to get into Bruno's famous and certainly highly dramatic Yes, Bruno, I can make a run speech he delivers every year at Council Ring to introduce the Baco Tennis Tournament. And we're also going to get into his Bruno camp, which he does every year to train the Baco three shooters before the Apache Relay and why that's controversial amongst old school alumni. We're also going to get into how Bruno somehow ended up being the conductor of the Welcome Song at camp and how he ended up on Morning OD Watch, which is a really funny story and much more, including his experience with the men at camp. So all in that more coming up on today's episode of the Live from Lake Balfour podcast. All right, and we are here today with the usual crew, Greg and Danny Silver, and our special guest for this week's episode is Stephen Bruno Brunstein. Bruno, long time no speak. How's it going? Well, it's going well, Matty. I just want to say, you know, first time caller, long time listener. Love the show. Love the show. You're doing great things. Thanks so much for your uh, everything you do. Yeah, well, of course. So we're super happy to have you on for this episode, you know, get a fresh perspective in here. So I want to talk about your history at Baco. So you came what year as a camper? And I know you left for a while before coming back in the early 2000s. My history at Baco, I showed up in the mid-70s. My first year was 1976. I was eight years old and I was in bunk five. Uh, it was not referred to as the funhouse back then. The, the bunks four and five were not enclosed, but separated by a little porch that was connected in the bunks and played some serious gaga ball on that porch that year. So anyway, I was here from 1976 to 1980, and then I left camp one year to go to tennis camp. Came back in 82, left again in 1983 to go to tennis camp. Uh, was a waiter in 1984. Uh, was a four-year counselor, 85 to 88. Uh, and then I kind of disappeared for a decade and a half. Uh, Fifteen years went by, uh, and then I strolled back in in 2003 as the adult tennis director, and haven't really looked back since. I think you were, did, do you think you're the only tennis director that took a like a 15-year break? I would imagine that would be the case. Yeah. I mean, like, well, first of all, you have to understand that back in my era, when I was young, the tennis director was was a young college sophomore or junior probably somebody who was just a really good tennis player and that was an acceptable leader of the Baco tennis program and in my absence in that 15 year period I think the marketplace changed and there was an expectation that the the program would be run more professionally and um, during that time I began to work full-time in the tennis business and I was became a certified USPTA teaching pro and um you know, so when I, by the time I came back as an adult, that was what was necessary at camp, and it had been going on for a while. Just so a I, couple, just a little background, Maddie. I don't know if you know this, but you know, Bruno was saying in the late '80s, um, <laughs> into the '90s, there were regular homegrown Baco counselors, you know, college age uh, counselors that were head tennis. It wasn't really the tennis director; it was just head tennis. Right, the same way you'd be like head baseball. And then right and around, like, I believe, yeah. 1995, we went in the direction of having like a legitimate adult tennis pro. Um, no, no, it might have been 94. 94. 94. 94. And then we had a few that were like, you know, one or two years. And we had Chris Groff, who I believe put together like a six or seven year run, maybe. And then Chris Groff gave way to uh, to Bruno. 
So, anyway, so given you've been around the tennis program for such a long time here, the last 17 plus years, how would you say the Baco tennis program has evolved? Because in my time here, you of course have your yearly uh, tournament, which is you know an institution at this point. You have the ladder. How would you say that the program as a whole and the different elements of Baco tennis have evolved in your time here? Well, I mean, well, the first thing we'd have to do is talk about the physical property of camp. You know, when I was growing up in the 70s, for a long time, there were only six tennis courts at camp. And then one year I came back, and maybe Greg and Danny know when this happened, but it was probably 81 or 82 when all of a sudden courts seven and eight were built. And uh, so that was a big difference. Um, the tennis shack and the whole tennis pavilion and the deck that is there, that was um, not always the case. Uh, fun fact about camp, the current volleyball shack um, actually used to be the tennis shack, and we were just. I was there for that. That was in my early like. I don't even know if the volleyball does the volleyball shack still exist, Maddie. The one that's like attached to bunk seventeen. No, the one that's like a stand. It's like that, a referee stand. That like the referee would sit on at the know. Know. No, it doesn't exist. Okay, well, I mean, it's only been taken away then in the last couple of years, but that was we had a very very small thing to to keep our small tennis hoppers in and um, I know that when I showed up at camp in, in 2003 I recommended to Bob that he buy some better equipment some more more tubes to pick up tennis balls with and some of the big carts that we teach on court seven and court six and we needed more space um, so I was very happy about that as far as the tennis program itself you know one of the things we love about camp is how you know there's this definitely progress and changes but a lot of things stay the same and you're quite right, you know, the, the tennis tournaments have been uh, a big part of, of the tennis program at camp forever. And we continue to carry on that tradition, uh, even though there are some significant challenges to doing that. It's something that's been, you know, uh, I, you know, it's a running joke between Greg and Danny and I, like whenever I put the tournaments up, I take a look and I, I look at other competing things in the schedule. And every year I stress, oh my God, there's just no way we're gonna finish the tournament this year. It's great at men one table talk, for sure. Like, watching Bruno stress through scheduling the matches for each of the tournaments to get to where we need to be is, like, part of the comedy of every summer, you know, down, down the stretch. But it's well, I think it, to, to know Bruno, there's two really important uh, pillars of his personality, to use Bruno's terms. And I think most of the kids at camp and the counselors at camp know Bruno is, like, you know, very hilarious um, and get stressed out about the tennis tournament and getting through it. And, you know, I'm sure he'll talk about other quirky things he does with his, you know, nervousness around Baco athletics and just life in general. But he also is one of the hardest workers you'll ever meet. So he has, set, he has such a high standard for his, his professional work that it manifests itself, you know, at camp in a, in a funny way. Because, like, at the end of the day, it's just summer camp, you know? It's it's just it's just a Baco tennis tournament. It's just, you know, a tennis activity so kids can have fun. Bruno takes it to a whole other level, and I think uh, making a run speaks volumes about more than just tennis. Yeah, so let's get into that. That's a very professional segue there. The tennis tournament, for sure, is definitely known best by your introduction speech. As I remember, like... Your one counseling. So, how did that come to be? When did you start with the yes, Bruno, I can make a run thing that's now like 
it's almost like cliched at this point, but it's so iconic you have to continue it every year. Uh, that's correct. That's correct. I think for some of the people that don't know exactly what we're talking about, the day Bruno, the evening Bruno posts the tournaments, um, he introduces the tournament itself at Council Ring and literally explains it from A to Z as if you've never been in camp before. It's, it's almost like a Hubie Brown level of yeah. detail and process of everything from like everyone's name appears on the bracket and everyone has a chance and the whole concept of seated players and how the draw is made. He explains it from A to Z as if you've ne- and every time you hear it, you get smarter about it and it's funnier. Well, and also <laughs> you have to remember, Danny, that, that every summer we have a bunch of kids in camp that are that are having their first Baco summers. Of and with that, that in mind, the older you get, the more you and Danny makes a good point. The, the more you understand it, the more you learn about it, and the funnier it gets. And it's very, very true. I feel like though there's something about it where when you know it's coming, it's like even more funny because like the first time it happens, it's like kind of taken aback but like but the eighth time like you've seen the speech you're kind of you know exactly what's gonna happen and it's like so on point every time but so Dan, i want Danny, yeah keep explaining what it is to the people that don't know yeah basically i'll just provide a little context by saying that it's the night the tournament comes out so you play the ladder for like three and a half four weeks people are bored of the ladder at that point because you know just moving in circles you're waiting for the tournament to like really kick in and and then you just know it's Bruno's night. It's the Bruno's ring. And what happens is, you know, Bruno, you go out and you say, like, ladies and gentlemen, the Baco Invitational, or not Invitational, I think that's the summer, that's the one early in summer, sorry. No, it's going to rain. Baco, 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 no, Baco Divisional Tennis Tournament. And then, you know, you explain the rules and everyone is like, you know, locked in, and then, of course, you say anyone can make a run. You tell – do you still tell the Lee Rivers story because he's not in camp I, anymore? I have not told the, the Lee Rivers story in a couple of years. Uh, I was um, – I always think about how I can make the program exciting and what I can do to, to um, you know, uh, create uh, a sense of passion about the tennis program and I was thinking about what I could do to get the kids fired up for the tournament and many many years ago I was in my room laying in my bed and I was thinking about a speech I can give and I don't know if you remember Spike Lee's movie Malcolm X where at the end of the movie all the kids pop up and say I am Malcolm X I am Malcolm X and I was thinking about that that vision and it occurred to me that it would be really funny if I can get like a, a bunch of kids to stand up and declare that they're going to win the tennis tournament. And based on that... What year do you think that you invented this speech? Oh, my goodness. Um, That's an interesting question. I came back in 2003. It is now 2020. I want to say that speech has been going on for 11 or 12 years. That sounds about right. I didn't do it the first bunch of years, but I would say it's been about 11 or 12 years. And what's your methodology for picking the people... Which is definitely the biggest appeal of the speech. That's not right. just you. It's absolutely. Um, I, I think about people who can stand up and and they have a lot of self confidence as young people to do it well and and participate and really be funny. Um, that probably is the criteria. The criteria. I have occasionally picked people who haven't you know stood up and declared it all that well. 
but um, I think about you know kids who I think would really enjoy the opportunity and, and stand up, square their shoulders, stick their chest out, and just declare, yes, Bruno, I can make a run. I love, I love to stand up and square the shoulders. It's yeah. just, I, and I, it's become a tradition within the tradition that you close it out with Rodrigo. Yeah. Rodrigo's been closing it out since he was like seven, and now Rodrigo, you know, you know, he's a teenager. Still, him still closing it out while it's the not camp, his, the camp goes berserk. While it's not as hilarious in itself as it was when he was seven, the fact that it's still Rodrigo, I think, makes it even more hilarious that you just, I mean. And I think was it this past summer or the summer before when you had Allison participate in the two? No, this was this summer. I, I she was there. I mean, Allison, you know, happened to be there when I was giving the speech. Allison is frequently a counselor. I probably told. I probably told her she could have missed it. What's that? No, no, I didn't tell her that. She just wanders. She happened to be there. The whole was, come on, the whole camp it. shows up to that counseling. Yeah. Well, I didn't. I did not tell Allison that I was going to do that. That was an inspiration in the moment, and I just wheeled around and I pointed at her and I said, "Allison Wartman, if you were a young man living in Bunk Nine, could you make a run in this tournament?" Stepped <laughs> up to the plate. She said, "Yes, Bruno, I can make a run." And we all thought it was great. Putting your boss on the spot. The best is exactly. at breakfast, the best is at breakfast or lunch the day of. Bruno, like you know, be eating like an early lunch and then going down to line up. And Bruno will tap me on the shoulder and be like, "Hey, Greg, I'm gonna need some ring tonight. Like tonight, tonight. Ring. like and like Greg, whatever you wanted to do, like table that till tomorrow. Like this is my ring. And he's all he's so confident because like the brackets are about to be up. They're just waiting in his room, you know. That's so funny. For some if you remember, Greg, like this summer I suggested, you know, it has been going on for 11 or 12 years, and I wonder if it's kind of losing its luster, and I mentioned the possibility that maybe I won't do it anymore, and Greg, you shot that down in a heartbeat. Oh, yeah. Uh, but but I, let me add, like, one of the things that I think really makes that an exciting night when I give the speech is that I believe it marks a very significant turning point in the summer. It does. You know, there are, the summer is backloaded with, with great events. And when that tennis tournament begins, it's like, it's almost like a message to camp. Like, we are in the mix, boys. Like, you know, we are, we have hit the peak and we are rolling downhill towards all the great stuff at the end. And I think that's what charges people up to. Totally. It's a culminating event. It's a culminating event. Another another great part of this speech, and I know, I mean, we, we could have three podcasts on this speech alone, is when you pick out, you know, you explain the draw. And the, the featured matchups. The featured matchups. But, 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 but then you also explain the concept of the luck of the draw. You <laughs> literally draw the names out of hats, and you come up with these very intriguing matchups. And you know what the audience wants to hear, and you announce these featured matchups, whether it be. Hang on, can I just ask a question? Hang on, we need to we need to pause the podcast briefly to ask you a question. Everyone really wants to know: Was Sterney versus Marcus really random, or did you? Come on, we got to talk about that. This needs to be addressed. Maddie, do you want to know how I do it? There's a weird technical way that I do it. I literally. There's no way that was random. Come on. This is behind the curtain. This is like it is all random. Here's what I do. I put I put the seated players on. And by the way, there's a method to that. The entire tennis staff gives me their recommendation for seated players. This is gold. This is awesome. Hold on, but uh, babe, wait, wait, wait. But this summer, the seating definitely could get sketchy at times. You know, I've had my but fair share. Playing a lot that summer. He's not. There's no like. True. You're, you're so what's what's your seating method? Well, for the seating method is based on you know my expectations and the tennis staff's expectations about how you will progress through this tournament draw and how you will do. But Maddie, you have a long and storied history at Camp Baco of being a very effective tennis player and that came into play 
And, you know, like you, what were you the last year? You said you were the fifth seed? Yeah, it was crap. But I was the fifth seed. <laughs> Listen, I was, I was, I lost in the Sweet 16, but my point being, the point stands that I think, like, you're acting, you're basically like the one-man, like, NCAA selection committee here. Um, no, he just explained how the other members of the staff contribute to the rankings. Yeah, it's, it's a science, not an order. Matty, have, have you ever heard of putting numbers next to some names? <laughs> Listen. The staff contributes, but I fully admit, I'm the t- tennis director. The buck stops with me. And if I think you deserve to be the fifth seed, then darn it, Matty Wasserman's going to be that fifth seed. And we'll see at the end of the day how I did. If you run to the quarters, I guess I was good. Now, nobody's perfect. We know the big dance, you know, the great basketball tournament every year. You know, we think we got it right. And then suddenly, you know, you got a Cinderella story, 15 seed. Suddenly in the Sweet 16, you know, we don't get it right. That's why we play the matches. And that's part of the beauty of the speech. Anybody could make a run. Anybody can get knocked out. So, so Danny said before that it keeps getting funnier and you keep learning more. I've heard this speech, you know, every single time it's ever been given. And I, I'm obviously a huge Bruno guy. This summer, I, I don't know if I was like, just like walking around camp by myself or couldn't fall asleep or up early or something, but I was in my own head. And I was realizing I'm like, Making a run isn't just about tennis. Like what Bruno's doing here is not just about helping these kids get better at tennis. You know, in life, there are seated players. There are people that are expected to do more and do better. But then there are people that aren't. And it's your and if you're not one of those people with numbers next to your name, with a number next to your name, like you can still make a run in tennis or whatever it is whatever else it is in life that you do yeah, it's absolutely a metaphor for life and you're right and but i and just that, realized it I, was i my late to the party on well there's also i think a big metaphor for camp too because it's so, tennis the tennis tournament is one of the very rare parts of camp where you know you go through basketball right everyone sits on the hill and roots for bako right it's bako versus the world whereas when you look at the tennis tournament it's the underdog at bako versus like the villain sort of whoever's at the top right you're always rooting for the underdog just naturally so you know when you have 80 people watching a tennis match that's in the semifinals of some unseated person like that's noteworthy right and you're rooting against someone who's like you're but it's like good natured rooting against uh for the most part and I think it says a lot about Bruno too yeah, I, I, just I, I, I don't want to steer. I don't want to steer away from the big dance if, if if we still have more to bite off. But about the speech itself, one thing Bruno has established in the camp community is the Bruno speeches, whether it be his "I can make a run" speech, what now has become his legendary all-around athlete speech, or when you know the other speeches he gives on on awards night. I mean, these are all legendaries. That was a great legendary stuff that has become quotable material in camp, whether it be the Mike Padilla one with, you know, they take over the uh, the upper field or the four pillars of the all around yesterday. I mean, the Bruno public speaking has just been a, a in, in the fabric of like this generation. And I want to also ask you about another public speaking event, which is the welcome song, because I think that's definitely irrelevant piece of this when did you start off with the welcome song and how did the tennis counselor end up being the welcome song ambassador at the camp so here's the deal maddie i i'm a straight shooter and i like to not um um 
give a lot of BS when I'm not really sure about a clear answer. It's like a dream to me. I have no idea how I became the welcome song guy. Now, Greg and I always joke about the fact that I have a, within a very limited range, I actually have a decent singing voice. He does have a good voice, but it's within a limited range. Right, I can't hit the high notes and I can't hit the low notes, but if you get me from like here to here, I can actually carry a tune. I do not know why. The only thing I'll say is that, you know, Bob, um, you know, was, was, running um the the assembly and bob and i had a very nice relationship and i i just think that one one random time he turned to me and he asked me to do the welcome song and, great. That's great. and um and i it might have been like seven or eight years ago um and i've just sort of like taken the reins of that and only recently in the last couple of, of summers have i made a slight change to that tradition where i asked somebody to help me you know, like I call up other counselors, junior counselors. Has it always them. been, has a clapping always been a part of it? Because I feel like sometimes you can't even hear the song because there's so much clapping, but it kind no, of is like. Clapping's new. The clapping's like new within your era. Do you the think that you, do you think that you swept in the clapping or were you just along for the ride? I'm, I'm not, I, I was along for the ride. I'm not a big clapping guy in that song. And I, I agree. I think it takes away from the song. I think it's a nice song. And if sung well and with a proper cadence, it's a beautiful song to listen to. And you're right. When you, the, the kids tend to clap and they clap really, really fast. And of course, it's exciting. But then, it, you know, it's slow. Well, the only, the only benefit you get to the clapping, it's like especially on like the visiting day version where you're like, you know, you have all the parents there. When everyone stops clapping at once, it's like really like good symmetry there but that's the only like at the very end of the song like welcome to camp Aiko. oh it just stops on a dime that's that's pretty solid though that makes you look good as the orchestrator good, like cheer and fight song material i feel like you know maddie maddie one of my first memories ever of bruno was i was like a really young camper and he was <clears throat> he sang in the talent show he sang like with the, whatever the Baco band was at the time he sang warfrat which is like a you know, a, ba- a Grateful Dead ballad. And still to this day, I ask him every multiple times a summer to, to reprise that. <laughs> because he does have a good voice. It's just within a limited range. Uh, but, you know, Warfrat really exceeds that limited range. If you know that song, there are some tough notes in that one and some long held notes. And I don't know. I, I just don't know if I can nail that anymore, Greg. So, so. All right. But to shift it back to the tennis program for a minute here, I'm not going to ask you to rank the best player you've ever seen in your time at Baco because that seems like a little bit unfair to the many people that you've right, seen. This could be a good but, time for us to talk about Andrew Prince. <laughs> but what I will ask you is, what do you think is the best like single match? Can you pinpoint like the most iconic match you've ever seen at Baco? Like whether it be finals, like just what is the best match you've seen? Great two guys. Okay. There was a match many years ago, a junior division match between Jeremy Chow and I think it was going here. I knew I think it was Jesse Harwin, where it was like in one of the outer courts, it was like court three. And the greatest thing, one of the things I love about it is like during the tournament, there's an epic battle going on in the courts. And all of a sudden, like you got like basketball count counselors and adults and junior division kids and like I turn around there's like a hundred people watching a match and these two little boys are just pounding balls back and forth and hitting like like drop shots on the backhand side and driven volleys and like overhead smashes fading back past the service line it was crazy high quality tennis that um, is my memory of, of, of the best match there was also a great match with Ryan Wilkoff as a young young guy uh, i forget who he was playing but ryan wilkoff made a run to the finals once in the junior division 
and that was very exciting. I don't remember who he lost to, but some of those matches were. What's the um? So that's. I mean, I feel like having a crowd there somehow like heightens it when people who literally like couldn't care less about tennis all of a sudden are like super into the match and it's like you know a hundred people because when you think about camp i mean it's really not like that big when you get a hundred people watching like two random people play tennis it's kind of like a big deal but my other question to you aside from just the best match you've ever seen is what's the biggest upset you've ever seen not tour not run all the way to the finals like because right when you have you know the 15 up when you have UMBC beating Virginia they're not it's not like they're winning the national championship but like that one game is just like so ridiculous in your mind when they won by 20 what's like the UMBC equivalent of Baco tennis even is there even one that you can think of I am racking my brain um, a tremendous upset through the years. Nothing is jumping off the page of me right now, Maddie. There have been quite a few, obviously. Uh, you know, uh, it's not like the top four seeds make the semis all the time, so somebody gets knocked off, and I, I just don't recall um, off the top of my head. But it's exciting when it happens, and, and again, during the speech, I always tell the kids, like, you know, I look around and I say, who's flying under the radar this year? Who have I not noticed? You know, I've tried to notice all of you, but who have I missed? Well, it's like your 15 minutes of fame, because, like, if you're not a good athlete, you just got to, you know, you're one of those people who's lobbing the ball. And that actually brings me to another point I have, which is the, of course, legendary Baco lob, which has been in effect for a long time. When they originally had the courts when you were there as a kid, was the fencing in the exact same place such that you could – just as easily hit the ball and it would go to the net without you being able to return it? Well, well, very, very, really, really great of you to bring up the concept of the Baco Lob, Maddie. That is. You can't like, talk like, about Baco tennis without talking about the Baco Lob. I mean, like, I could talk a lot about the Baco Lob. I mean, like, first of all, the tennis courts are constrained by the mountain, right? Like, the upper field of course. down and suddenly it levels off, and there you have it. And then, like, you have the tennis court and it slopes down to the soccer field. So, so. There's always been a little bit, um, you know, narrow spacing behind the baseline, and it, it you have to learn how to handle that. And what people, you know, I know how to handle the big lob very easily. Like if you're on the baseline and you see a ball, you know, going high and it's going to hit near the baseline and jump over your head, um, there are two ways to handle that. You can learn to hit the ball on the rise, so as soon as it bounces, it's coming up into your hitting zone. That's you tough one though. That's head. tough. That's a tough skill, but the other thing to do is to not let the ball bounce and to run up and to step into into three-quarter court and to take it as a, vo a volley at three-quarter court and use it as an opportunity to approach the net. And the, more, and the more savvy tennis players do that, and the other ones, the ball bounces, and then it comes up, and then suddenly they're backing up, and their tennis racket is scraping the fence, and they're looking at me like I did something wrong. Now, this is really the ultimate question of this podcast, and I have my personal answer for who I've played against. Who is the best Baco lobber? Because it's a skill. It's not luck. There's people who are really, like, talented Baco lobbers. Same way, like, someone's talented at hitting a forehand or, like, a volley. There's people who are talented at Baco lobbing. Who's your... Uh, you're right, and I'm, I'm just, again, sorry that you're asking these great questions. To me, it's got to be, it's got to be Braden Berwin for me. I mean, he is the consummate... He's good at everything. He's one of those people who every ball that you'll hit, it'll come back easily. You're never you're never hitting a winner on him. 
And then you get settled into a point, and then he hits the shot, and it looks totally unthreatening. She's not hitting a hard, not a lot of spin. And all of a sudden, you see the ball, and you're just, like, running back. And all of a sudden, you look up, and it's like, I'm at the fence already. There's nowhere left to go. You, know, you are right about Braden Berwin. He is a very, very talented lobber. The reason that didn't come to mind is that Braden is such a talented tennis player and he's got such a well-rounded game that it just didn't occur to me. But you can have a well-rounded game and still have that, like, you can be anyone and still have your best shot. And make a lob, that's a shot. Absolutely, it's an important one. And, you know, the best tennis players understand, like, they take a look and, they, you know, they sort of adjust their game according to... Like, there was one year I lost to him 8 to nothing in a match, and I could have sworn I had him on every point in the entire match. And he beat me 8-0 because every point he was just bagel-lobbing. I had no answer. There you go. There you go. And I'm going to guess that there were probably some other great shots he hit besides the lobby. Oh, yes, there were. But it's just, like, the most infuriating thing because it's a skill that... I just don't possess. I can't. I can try my whole Baco career. I can never hit it in that specific like two foot radius where it's in like clearly in, but then it bounces over. I could just. I can't do that. When the other when the other camps come to when the other camps come for the Baco Invitational, there's all as as I'm always walking you know around the courts whether I'm picking up water or delivering the trophies. I always spot a couple of kids from other camps complaining about the Baco lob. It's like, you know, it's like, uh, it's like a short porch in right field or, you know, pesky pole or something. It's such a home court advantage if, if you know how to use it. And right. that's where someone who's been on the courts all summer has an advantage in the, uh, in the big dance. You know, if you practice your Baco lob, you know, that's, an, that's a built-in advantage. Absolutely. And, and when you talk about Bruno public speaking moments, you know, Danny, you're not often out there, but you know, when all the camps have arrived for the Baco tennis tournament, they all gather around the tennis shack and I give a whole speech about the tournament and how it works. Very I detailed. Talk about the fact that like, listen, there's not a tremendous amount of room behind the baseline. You have to figure it out. And I, I alert them to it and I come up front about it because I don't want like a hundred kids to come complaining to me. Like, like these are our tennis courts. This is it. Figure it out. All right, and then I think we should move the conversation. We got the tennis program on lockdown. You mentioned earlier about you have some weird quirks when you get nervous about different things, and there's nothing in camp more nerve-wracking than the Baco 3. So I want to ask you about this because back in the summer, which feels like very short ago, but it was actually you know probably 11 months ago, which is crazy, we had the Baco 3, and I interviewed the four Baco 3 shooters my age when we broke the record, shooting it in 19. And every single one of them mentioned how important Bruno Camp was to their Baco 3 experience. And Bruno Camp, for those of you who don't know, is basically for... So we have the shootout on the first night of Olympics, right? You get your winners. And then over the next three days, up until the Apache Relay, where they're actually shooting the three, they're practicing all day long. And during the team meets, instead of helping us with the song practice, they instead go to the courts and practice Baco threes. And I presume you run yeah, them through. i stop you right there for a second, Maddie. And I know we talked about this on the pod back during the summer of 2019. Um, we did. There will be alumni or old school Baco people not happy to hear what you just said. So I'm getting, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Give me a you sec. You know, just about the shootout and about yes. not participating in team meets and about how this free throw shooting has become 
so much more than what it originally was. Um, and I know you're going to get to the Bruno camp, but I, I, I can't hear you say that without thinking about alumni my age and older being like, what is he talking about? Yeah, um, it's not, it's not, it's more than an event in the relay. It's, it's yeah. a whole thing. I mean, you know, your stats go down forever. You, you'll always know what you shot the Baco 3 in, what your friend shot the Baco 3 in. You'll know people five years younger than you will know what you shot the Baco 3 in. It's a whole operation. And, of course, Bruno Camp is a big part of it because now you've taken them under your wing for these two or three days. And I assume you run them through sorts of drills. About I mean, it's, at the end of the day, it's just shooting free throws. So there's only so many variations of drills you could do. But how did this Bruno Camp come to be? All right, um, let me take over here. I need a couple of minutes. Of course, have the floor. <laughs> um, so I've been at camp since 2003. Um, Greg, when was Eric Kansky a waiter? Oh, Okay, so I believe that when Kansky was a waiter in 09 and he was one of the shooters, I was on head, head OD that night, which means I was an adult that was responsible for my late night shift at camp and supervising. And I was walking around and it was night two of Olympics and after the day is over, on nights two and three, the shooters practice. And while I was walking by the courts, I kind of had an inspiration where I would help these guys practice. And to me, I wanted to like, I don't, Maddie, I don't really do drills per se. Like, I'm a tennis counselor. I was a very good basketball player, but it's not like I'm really Did you shoot the three? Uh, I did not shoot the three. Oh, no way. Bruno, Bruno's... Bruno built his entire life around making sure he doesn't have to do stressful things like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we can talk about that in a bit. But I, I want to be clear that the clinics are not about um, the, the mechanics of shooting a good free throw. It's sort of like it's giving them Pressure. an opportunity to practice in different scenarios. Like, listen, you know, who knows who's going to be the, the first shooter? Could be Apache, could be Oneida, right? Maybe Blackfeet goes out first and then... Um, Cherokee comes 10 seconds later or maybe Oneida comes out first and everybody has to wait 45 seconds so I want to I want all the shooters to to be able to practice all the different scenarios all the different orders of how they shoot how long they have to wait so I literally go out there with a clipboard full of different sequences of shooting and we do eight runs on the second night and eight runs on the third night where I practice with them and they get a chance to be the first shooter the fourth shooter second or third Sometimes they go out together. And and as we're doing that, the other thing I'm doing that probably isn't appreciated is I'm getting inside their heads and I'm doing everything I can to build up all the confidence in the So world. it's funny. So I don't remember who said this on the podcast when I interviewed them back in August. But one of them said to me at, during Bruno's camp, he would say, if you did really well, he'd say, great, you're ready. And if you did bad, he'd say, great, you got it out of your system. Well, that's exactly right. You know, somebody like, it, it, invariably, everybody has one really horrible round. Right. I think it was Glatzer who said that. And you, and you just don't want that round to occur when it counts. So in practice, when somebody is like shooting at like 10, 15, 20, 25, 28, and then they finally finish and they're, they're, they're so dejected and they're looking scared and upset. And I'll just look at them and I'll say, you know what? That's the best thing that ever happened to you. Around, and it's out of your system now. It'll never happen again. You should be grateful that you just went through that experience. You're fine. And like all I'm doing is I, I, I love the kids so much and I want them to succeed so much that I'm just trying to get in their head and instill tremendous confidence. And and I always say to them, like, I got to tell you guys, like, I've been doing this a long time. Like, you guys look great. This is good. I know 
it'll go really well for all of you. Now, Maddie, the truth is, I don't know. I don't. Okay, but do you have a do you have a feeling? Do you have a feeling like? last year that like there was potential but like i guess you really don't know on the end of the day when the shooters actually go out there with the whole camp sitting on the hill like that you really don't know what nobody, exactly nobody ever knows anything for sure there was something that happened last year though that never happened before i usually practice with the shooters on night two and night three and that's it but last year it rained on night three so they didn't get their session so while all the guys were getting painted up after lunch to begin the Apache relay, right before the relay, I did eight runs with those guys. So they were doing practice with me like ten minutes before. I didn't know that. Two people were running around tossing frisbees, running across the upper field. Like I, I were practicing right at that moment, and it had never happened before. And I was really wondering, I was really wondering how that would affect the results. And lo and behold, it was historic. So I think that that was a really big advantage. I do not plan on doing that again. It was a, a freak occurrence. I, I want to be. I want to do runs with them on night two and night three. And I is it? No, where, no. I, I have a theory where the Baco three is so about that one singular moment when it happens. Like Ethan Canner shoots in three, but if he was tagged. 20 seconds later or he had a different lunch that day he might have shot in 50 like it's well that's it's, why we were saying last summer the off. fact that they all got it's tagged at the same time and anytime a, a jake rubin shoots in 31 or you know a jesse corn shoots in 29 or a kansky shoots in three it just contributes to the theory of randomness however i do think with the increased practice that these guys have had and with the bruno camp the numbers speak for themselves. The numbers have trended downwards over the last decade, unquestionably, kind of apexing with this past summer where everybody seemed to finish in less than a minute. But it is, it's almost like an NBA where advanced analytics has like contributed to a I was new just about to say that. A new way of playing where it's almost like the computer has mastered the game it's almost like... Like, of course, three Bruno, points are worth more than two points. Yeah, it's almost like a, like Bruno's rehearsals over a large sample size have lowered the numbers. Um, even to the... I mean, I always love walking by Bruno while he's doing his little training because on his little clipboard, he doesn't just have the different orders. He has, like, the dot, dot, dots between each letter to signify how... Like, B, dot, dot. A dot 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 C <laughs> dot O, and then it's like it, he he calibrates the reps, so it's like everyone has to practice different waiting times and shooting by themselves. It's and it's great. Yeah. like crunching the analytics to prepare these kids, and the proof is in the numbers. Yeah, you have your outliers, but like I think my theory of like what they had for lunch and what the what, the the wind and all that is like not really legit. I think. I think it's actually about the prep. And, I, I, and Bruno, really what, do you, what do you say to the critics, the old school critics who, I mean, we said this, I think we talked about this last year, Danny. We said with you that you're, you've come around a little bit on the Baco 3, but the whole like aura of it for someone of your generation kind of doesn't sit well with you. So Bruno, being someone who grew up in that generation and now being the trainer who's now the lead dog on the um, new version of the Baco 3, what do you say to the critics? 
I mean, I, I guess what I would say is like sometimes like when you compare stats in baseball from like the 1930s to today, like it's tough to compare stats. And I suppose like, you know, segueing on what Danny was saying, like it's tough to compare stats between uh, the results from 30 years ago and today. Um, I, I don't really hear a lot of criticism about it. We just have to acknowledge that in general, the boys um, are practicing more for it. And, you know, maybe 30 years ago, you took 15 or 20 free throws and you stepped up and you gave it a shot. And now probably each shooter has, has taken 800 free throws to prepare for that event. So you have to acknowledge that there's a difference. I'm glad you brought up the stats thing, Bruno, because if waiters of the early 2000s or late 90s are listening to this, you know, back in those days, as long as you were quote unquote under 15, it was acceptable. Now, with the amount of practice that these guys have, I feel like anything in double digits is like borderline unacceptable. Unless you are the rare guy that goes like eight for 11, but happens to not hit it until 11, you know, make, make, miss or, or whatever. It's almost like you have to look at this era with a little bit harsher uh, criteria. Like right. if you're shooting it at 15 now after shooting 800 free throws, to me, that's not acceptable. I also just think traditionalists at camp need to. What is a traditionalist at camp? Is it just sticking to what you know from your years? I mean, Bruno was has been at camp for two very long stints from two totally different eras. That's how traditions are created. You know, we didn't always have every single thing we do. They all developed, and it's all natural, and it evolves. I mean, for kids at camp now. The Bruno camp is, as far as they're concerned, has been there forever, you know? And, and, and it'll, it'll, everything at camp is like that, you know? It's forever, because it's for your own forever. Right. Three, three quick uh, facts to finish out this topic. First of all, um, I always wait for the waiters to approach me. Like, I, I try not to be the center of things all the time, and I never want to, like, continue this. Like, I did it the first year, and it was I thought it was a one-and-done, and I had no intention of doing it again. But after... Kansky was a waiter, I guess the shooters went to the previous year's shooters and said, like, what do you guys do? And they said, go find Bruno. He was really helpful. And every single year, the waiters come to me and say, like, Bruno, can you help us? And that's when I say, absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll you know, be out there tonight. Let's go. I'll get the key. It'll, it'll be fine. So I always wait for them. Um, fact number two, and this is kind of interesting. Um, you asked me, did I shoot the three? And I did not. Um, I started camp in 1976. I was on Oneida in 84. Um, with David Elkins, Leo's father, and he started camp a year before I did, and he never left. You know, I dipped out of camp because I was such a committed tennis player, and I went to tennis camp a couple of summers. And, you know, he had a run, a 10-year run with no interruptions, and, you know, there was no shootout back then. Like, David and I were the best basketball players on our team, and we were going to shoot it. That's, that was the era we were in, and I would never even consider taking that opportunity from him. Also, as Greg and Danny would tell you, I've got a little bit of issue with anxiety in my life, and I think that that, you know, is a tremendous, um, tremendously anxious moment where the entire camp is watching you, and you have to hit three consecutive three throws, which isn't all that difficult, except, you know, there have been some disasters, and I, I wanted no part of that event. I, I was happy tell, to tell, tell them what you told me before when I spoke to you on the phone. Well, well, I'm not sure what you're referring to, but the third thing I wanted to mention is that, like, after I spend so much time working with these kids, yeah. 
practicing with them, getting in their heads, making them feel so confident that they're going to do it. And, they, and I try to relax them. By the time the event comes, all those kids are feeling so good and they've been doing well. I don't even watch the three man. <laughs> the Apache three relay starts and like, you know, everything happens on the upper right. field. And then, and then like all of a sudden, like the leapfrog happens and like, it disappears above. Going on and like the shooters are all together and they're huddling up and they're telling each other how much they love each other. And I just walk away. I go down to the lake and I sit near the buckets, you know, for the for the bucket brigade, and I just sit at the lake and I breathe deeply because I am a nervous wreck. There's no way I I could even consider watching it. The it's last like, how, it's like how Jerry it's like how Jerry West doesn't watch the finals games when he was running the Lakers because he'd get too nervous. He would just drive around in his car listening to like, you know, FM radio. Well, that's the thing. That's like um, who's the guy from Moneyball? Billy Bean never watched uh, A's game. He never watched. The last time I watched the Big O three, and Jerry West, Billy Bruno, yeah, exactly. So the, the last time I watched the Big O three was um the year that Jesse Coyne did not do well, and um, and he was oh my God when Jesse was doing practice runs for me, I have never seen a kid so confident as he should be. I mean, he could do it, lefty, righty, eyes closed, backwards, <laughs> telling jokes. I mean, I have never seen a shooter look so good, and he just had a bad experience. It didn't happen for him. That will periodically happen. And I was so upsetting to watch him struggle like that. I couldn't go back. That was it for me. So ever since that that year, I just wandered down to the lake and I hope for the best. And it's usually Danny Silver that runs down. So you know, like pretty cool. I'm like, I'm Dunstan. at the lake. And I hear like, I hear people cheering. And I'm like, okay, something must have good, good really happened. And then like, I hear coming people charging down to the lake, yelling out numbers. And I never really know what to believe. And then finally I see Danny and he gives me the numbers. And I have a, a good moment where I was like, yes, Bruno, you did it again. Has <laughs> 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 there ever been one, what's like the most pleasantly surprised you've ever been at a number? Like a guy you were like, oh, like, I don't know about this one. And then like it comes back and you're like, wow, he did it. There have definitely been a few shooters where they did not look good. And they came through well. And again, this is another moment in this interview where I'm just not coming up with any names um, at the moment. But there are people, I always tell them how good they look because I want them to believe it. And I want them to feel really, really uh, strong about their, their chances to do well. And I, I worry about some kids. And uh, sometimes my worries bear out. And But again, as Danny said, the, the scores have been very, very solid over the last, you know, and, I mean, it's gotten to the point where like by the time it's showtime it's like I've seen all these guys make so many free throws that it's I expect them all to do well believe it or not yeah I guess so um, god I was thinking about what who's who shot the three that wasn't a shooter he was kind of like a small small guy he was broader black hair kind of Fishman. long in the back who Fishpin no not Fishpin I think it was Scott Broder there was somebody that did it in three or four who was not a basketball player. Oh, oh Ian, 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 Ian Kent? Yes, I was thinking about Ian Kent. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that was a, a pleasant surprise. <laughs> Bruno played college basketball. A lot of people don't know that. Did you really? Yes, yes. I played one year of college basketball my sophomore year at Binghamton. Um, it was nothing but... Oh, the father of Max and Jake Goldstein was a teammate of yours, am I right? That's right. That's right. So it was Division Three basketball, nothing like that. <laughs> That's absurd. But uh, yeah, I was a very good basketball player back in the day. That's true. That's true. Still are. 
What he was doing was more impressive than Dougie. <laughs> That's a whole That's a podcast for another time. That's, That's a 30 a for 30 for another time. Can you tell us a little bit about more one other responsibility he has? Of course. Any, I got more time. I want, I want to hear Bruno explain the, the, the science and the art behind early morning OD. Oh, that's a great topic, yeah. Because I think, I think a lot of the campers now, I don't know if the, the older Baco uh, generations know this, Baco campers wake up super early. I mean, the, Little the, the kids wake up early. It's like a whole scene, and the marshmallows is what we call them, and Bruno's responsible for, Bruno and Rick are responsible for arranging the supervision. Right, so here's the deal. So um, it is a, a tremendous scene with a lot of young kids, and some kids in the intermediate division, some campers go up there, but breakfast is typically at 8.30 these days, and, um, and children are up very, very early, and uh, Rick Weiss and I now organize the supervision and the counselors who are up, uh, who are taking shifts of early morning OD. Prior to that, I think a lot of counselors who were in the junior division were doing it, and they were doing it like eight or nine times a summer, and it was really tough on them. And we just made a decision um, as a staff that we were going to have everybody participate in it. So I think a counselor typically takes two shifts um, a, a summer coming up for early morning OD. But anyway, in terms of why I'm responsible for that, uh, back in the day um, when I started camp, I was one of the adults on staff that was responsible for late night head head OD. And um, the head head OD late night has to sign in the counselors when they come in from a night out and then they have to sort of stay up a little later to make sure camp is. It's like the, it's the, it's the adults in charge of the head ODs. Correct, that's what a head head OD is. So, um, you know, it, typically a head, a head head OD is up till 1, 1 1.30 in the morning to make sure camp is shutting down and everything is quiet and safe. I have always had a hard time staying up late, and you know, especially as an adult. And also, I'm up early teaching um, extra private tennis lessons before breakfast. So, and when I was doing my head head OD shifts, it was just incredibly exhausting for me, and I was really struggling to stay up at night. So, <laughs> and it was part of my job, and I think all the other adults kind of relied on me to take my once or twice a week shift doing that, um, and I just couldn't do it anymore. So it was a you know, it was like two or three weeks into a summer, and I asked to have a meeting with all the adults in camp, and I really had something important to tell them. And like, everybody was really worried, and they didn't know if something was wrong, was it that I have any health issues, was, it, was I having a problem with my family? And this meeting is now referred to as Bruno's Mea Culpa, where I gathered everybody on this, and everybody looked at me, and they had no idea what I was about to say, and I was like... I mean, we, we thought like you were going to announce that you were like terminally ill or something like that. You took yeah. your glasses off, it was like... We were all in the office, like awaiting like just horrible news. You can you can cut the tension in the office with a knife. Exactly. So what year? Started, what I year was at, this? I looked around at everybody and I said, "Guys, I just can't stay up late anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't stay." You know, we all started laughing so hard. Like Bruno was taking it so seriously. He was like, "Guys, look, I really I gotta talk to you about something. I'm happy you're all here. You know." Sorry to like interrupt your schedules, but it's really important that I, I tell all of you this at, at once. I'm really having trouble staying up late at night. So hard, like nobody took it seriously. It was so ridiculous. No, I believe the line was the exact words was I haven't been doing my job. Yes, you're right. I have because like honestly I was supposed to stay up late and I was, I was like falling asleep and I used to partner up with, with Jennifer Elkin. She was my co-head OD 
and I was like leaving her alone at night. Like I just, I was falling asleep and not getting up. And I finally, so when I, when I gave my mea culpa and I said, I'm just not capable of staying up late. I said, listen guys, I get up early to teach a lesson before breakfast. Why don't I take responsibility for early morning camp? And that's when I began to take that. Whole How long ago was this? Again, good question. I want uh, the mea culpa. The mea culpa was a long time ago. It's been a while. The mea culpa, but but uh, early morning OD coverage is like less than five years old. I would say. Yeah, and it's great because hey, I, hey, I don't know, Danny. I think I think that's not true. I mean, like Rick Weiss and I have been making that list together. I think longer than five years. I but the way that you do it, I love I love how a council ring the night before, like you'll check in with the person to remind them, you know, or like or you'll have the admin waiter get the person in the dining room and come to the admin table so they can like, do you have an alarm clock? Okay, would you like me to wake you up? Can you borrow someone's alarm clock? And like, again, it just, it, it just speaks to your high standards of work. Yeah, you want the kid to be supervised, but it's more about like, you knowing that these counselors can be held accountable for responsibilities because that's what helps the community thrive. I mean, I well, see that, it. I see it. That, that's true. And the reality is, Greg, like there's a list on the bulletin board. Um, you know, they're supposed to check it. They're supposed to get up on their own. You and I both know that if, that if I didn't say to them the night before, like letting them know, like, this is your job, you know, there would be more absenteeism. So <laughs> literally, and Maddie, this is funny, like you don't know this, but like every single night at dinner, I'm sitting there and like they're coming up from the council ring to go into the dining hall and I'm out, I'm sort of like up near the gazebo and I approach the two counselors and every single night I say like, you know, so-and-so, did you see that, you know, you're up for tomorrow morning, it's your shift? Like, yes, Bruno. So like, okay, do you need me to wake you or do you have an alarm? And they tell me, you know, most people will say they can get themselves up, but a couple of them, you know, request that I, um, I get them and it's important, you know, there's just a lot of kids there. I mean, it's so crazy. funny that counselors can't stand it, you know, because they have to wake up like 30 minutes before they normally yeah, do it. Yeah, you get like a fifth-year counselor who's like a counselor in bunk 22 that's like, you know, basically a made man on staff, but <laughs> not immune from early morning. You just see him in the gazebo with their sweats on, just like <laughs> furious, you know? I do, I, do have one, I do have one question. We've talked about, in addition to you being the tennis director, you also lead the welcome song, coach the Baco three shooters, you're in charge of early morning OD. I am getting a question from some of, uh, from some people that know that I'm recording this podcast. Can you just give a quick minute on what happened when the mentalist came that summer? <laughs> oh, my uh, God. In the, uh, during the orientation staff, uh, staff show. Uh, can I just paint the picture quickly and then, and then just throw it to you? Absolutely, man. So every year, the night before the kids come to camp, both Baco and Chinao's staff have like a co-ed event where, you know, sometimes, you know, Allison will bring in like a game show or bring laser tag, you know, entertainment, like a comedian, whatever. One year they brought in a mentalist or a hypnotist or whatever. And let's just say... Uh, well, he was a Baco alum. He had actually gone to Baco. But we don't need to go deep on that. I, but basically the tricks were so intense that uh, it drove Bruno insane. So I, I, I promised some people that I would ask. So please, just give us a minute on that. I can give you a minute. It's it's not something I'm proud of. It was a little bit embarrassing. You know, sometimes I do things to entertain the camp and I like, I pretend that I'm really upset or excited, but like this was a, a bad moment for me. I was, you know, it happened in the social hall and this mentalist was doing things that, I'm a very logical, rational person. and. 
I could not <laughs> explain what I was seeing. And it was very, very upsetting to me. And I remember sitting next to Danny and like he saw, like he saw it in my face, how upset I was getting at what I was seeing. Like everybody else was like excited and like wasn't giving it too much thought. And, and I was like, no, this can't be happening. This makes no sense. It, was, it would be as if like we looked outside and like a, a Tyrannosaurus Rex walked by, like a big dinosaur walked by. Like that would be upsetting, right? You wouldn't just go and say, ooh, that's cool. Like, no, it makes no sense. So I, I got more and more upset and I exploded and I stood up and I pointed at the guy and I think I screamed, you are the goddamn devil. I stormed out and I left the social hall and, and people were really, like, they didn't know what was wrong with me and I disappeared and I don't think you guys could find me for a long time and I was hiding on the arts and crafts shack so I was looking at the lake. Because you know, I gotta tell you boys, whenever you're really upset in life, whenever you're stressed, I really would just highly recommend just looking at the lake, it helps. Or you, or you could just fall asleep on the rafters like you did when you were a camper. It was almost like a break, like it was like an unnatural outburst in like a crowded room with everybody else quiet. It seemed almost like one of those break yells, you know? It, yeah. it, was, it, it was bizarre. Yeah. And then I explained to you, if you really knew how to predict the future, you would have been able to get in through the gate at the, at the you know, entrance of camp without having to call the main office. That is how Greg talked me off the ledge. He was like, Greg, if this guy really was supernatural, um, yeah, he, he, he would have been able to know the code to get into the gate. Did we lose Maddie? Oh, there he is. I'm right here. Anyway, not my proudest moment, um, but, you know, it is what it is. Every 20 years or so, I have embarrassing moments where I get really uptight on uh, 75 or 80 people and then I move on <laughs> alright well that was a very funny story so we thank you very much for your time glad to have you on this podcast Maddie it was a pleasure I've been listening to these throughout the year and they're, they're really incredible additions to the camp program and, and uh, I'm always happy to hop on and, and share my memories and my thoughts with you so thank you for having me all right well thank you and thank you guys most handsome man baco and thank you guys for listening to this week's episode we will hopefully be back soon with another podcast and keep you guys entertained throughout this summer where we're missing camp <laughs>